Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to episode 93 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I am your host, Jack Rico. And if this is your first time listening to the show, thank you for discovering us. If you don't know about the show, Highly Relevant is a weekly podcast that I've put together for the last year and a half now, Uh, and it's for those who have an interest in American pop culture, but with a Hispanic twist. In this show, I usually interview the journalists, celebrities, media executives who are reshaping our view of entertainment in the United States. It's changed, definitely. So I want to introduce you to two magnificent guests that I have for you uh, for this uh, week. The first is Miguel Sirgado. He is the editor-in-chief of Ola USA, one of the most important Hispanic magazines in the United States. Him and I discuss bilingual strategy for reaching today's highly divided U.S. Hispanic. Yes, it's a myth that we're all together. No, no, it's a divided Hispanic community. Uh, but they know how to exactly how to target all of us at the same time. Uh, we also talk about the criteria for defining what a Hispanic celebrity is. So, for example, is Bruno Mars Hispanic? And why he was at one point hesitant in taking the job. Then I chat with Alonso Ruiz Palacios. He's the Mexican director of Museo, one of the best-reviewed Latino films of 2018 starring Gael Garcia Bernal. Him and I explore why he wants to make movies for people who shun predictable endings and why Mexico is more interested in celebrity than its own country's problems. We begin with Miguel Sirgado. Hispanic magazines for a long time have catered to Spanish-language-dominant Latinos in this country. But things are changing now. New research has shown that Latinos are consuming more English-language content than ever before. This is why Miguel Sirgado, editor-in-chief of Ola USA, is embracing a bilingual and bicultural vision that separates him from the pack. Miguel Sirgado, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you, Jack? It's so good to hear you and to talk to you. No, no, mira. So we know each other from a previous magazine where we worked together there for years. Um, then you had left the magazine. Uh, you were on your own for a while. And then I remember you had then started working at All USA. And one day to another, I blinked and you became the editor-in-chief of this great magazine. And before we go into how you got the job and how um, how you're adjusting and your vision for the magazine and everything, tell a little bit about what the Ola Magazine brand is. Well, um, as you said, Ola Magazine is a, it's a worldwide uh, brand. I mean, it was founded in 1944. Um, that's you know, Ola, and uh, it's basically a magazine that is very, it's been very dear to uh, uh, Hispanic consumers around the world. Uh, later on, they opened Hello magazine, which is very famous too. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's right now, it's a, it's a family owned company that has like basically 30 editions international editions around the world in 10 languages uh in like five continents so yeah it's a huge um uh enterprise uh basically led by the effort of 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 a family in spain uh which is a very distinctive uh, uh way of producing magazines today i mean we all know 
where the world of publishing is going or, or, or the changes that are going on. And uh, it is incredible that uh, this family uh, two years ago decided to get into, U into the U.S., which is really one of the most difficult markets. Uh, I was just going to say that. Why did it take them so long to break into this market? And why is it a difficult Hispanic market to break into? Well, first of all, um, they did uh, study this market for so many years before entering here. I think it is, it's, it's, it's a mix of, of reasons. Uh, there is this personal pride of, of this company to have a magazine in the United States right now and try to survive and, and grow uh, in a complicated market. And there is also the thing that, you know, there is a brand that is very dear to a lot of people. Um, when you think about Ola, in, in the case of Hispanic uh, market, uh, you think about our grandparents uh, reading. I mean, I grew up uh, looking at Ola in the houses of, of yeah. my grandparents, <laughs> my parents. Uh -huh. I mean, it's something that is very dear to consumers uh, as Coca-Cola it is of other brands that are like historical brands. Um, I think Ola has the opportunity in the U.S. to basically capture that spirit and come out and discover, you know, and, and respect the core of this publication, which is, you know, Ola is basically uh, like a leader in royal uh, news and also celebrity news around the world. So why not be here? I mean, we have to, we've been trying to discover who's the royalty of the U.S. and also bring the royal uh, uh, um, news to the United States in a language and a form that is uh, close to what we think our readers want today. You know, it's interesting you say that because my opinion of Ola has always been that it's a very aristocratic magazine. It's high society. And, you know, there's other market, there's other magazines that cater to more of a lowbrow Hispanic, uh, for example, uh, or a mass consumer, right? And this one has always been, uh, to me, uh, just very niche, you know, very, very upscale. I think it is also a matter of perception. Uh, again, I think the fact that Ola was one of the first in the uh, magazines in the world, publications in the world, to cover royals that make a thing that is an, an aristocratic or kind of niche publication, but actually we do cover entertainment and uh, we do cover royal news, uh, but there is a way that we do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is this like Ola touch uh, for Ola and for Ola readers. First of all, image is, uh, is something that is important to us, the way we present news. We can be talking about the same people. We just present it in a different way. Right. For us, image speak more than a story itself. So it's all about the images we uh, give access to our readers. Uh, also, the fact that we try to give people um, like like the human aspect of the celebrity uh, behind the fame, you know? It's like, we want to see the person behind the fame. And that's something that all I try to do all the time. Also, there is so much uh, bad news in the world that mm -hmm. we try to, to bring like a little bit of- Sunlight, uh, <laughs> sunshine. <lightness. laughs> um, el, el, el lema, the, you know, the motto in Spanish is, of all is la espuma de la vida. La espuma de la vida. You know, la espuma is what you see la, en, encima de la cerveza, no? <laughs> little sí. thing that floats. That's what we try to bring. The foam, right. So, yeah. <laughs> that lightness, that something that will entertain uh, and, and, and give a positive touch to our lives. So how did you how did you end up at Ola USA? Well, I was working for uh, you know I, I I was I just finished it uh, finished a documentary about Cuba the um, 
two years, three years ago, and uh, I, you know, I got a call uh, from a good friend that they were looking for someone to be a deputy um, editor, and I came aboard um, with my experience in other publications. And you know, printing is something that I really like. I, to tell you that, I mean, to be really frank, I was I was very surprised that. Uh, a magazine was opening in a moment. <laughs> yeah. A moment, and it's such a difficult time. Yeah, because we but, know what's been happening with Time Inc. It no longer exists. Um, right. It got folded. Now it's Meredith and Condé Nast has been having their problems. Many magazines have been going down. But it's interesting. The Hispanic market hasn't really been touched. Or like it's still there. Um, and yeah, I was kind of surprised too. So what were some of your thoughts about getting into a market that was in transition? There is always an opportunity. Uh, it's, I think it is a matter of, again, the way you present. I mean, it, yes, it is an oversaturated market, uh, but I think you got the, the, you know, the support of a brand that has been there since 1944 and they know how they do things. Um, there is also the compromise of this family that wants to that respect uh, a publishing and and you know the value of our readers and it's a great experiment to really discover what this mar- you know the market needs. I mean, obviously there is a need for this kind of publication, and we just have to uh, find those needs and and and. You meet them and 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 deliver uh, a great product, and I think we're doing that. We're, we're on the way of doing that. We've been we've been in in the market here in the U.S. Uh, for two years and a half already, and 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 I think we do, we do have a great product that uh, you know we would discover in this this the needs of this market from the perspective of a brand that exists. In 1994, 1944. Sorry. Yeah, that's that's a long time now. Yeah. For for the people, for the listeners that might not know what an editor in chief does, because we hear editor at large, managerial editor. Some people can be confused with the the position or the job description of an editor in chief of a magazine. What exactly is the uh, the job of an editor in chief? Well, let me tell you something. Those days is a lot. <laughs> They've changed too wear, much, huh? I do wear a lot of hats, and uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, my I my job is basically to be involved in the process of creating the magazine from uh, from conception to to the end. To oh wow! To, okay. To to everything, you know. Um, so when we see the magazine, you essentially have envisioned everything. Well, yeah, you know that idea of a glamorous job uh, <laughs> as the first product is just fiction. The days of Graydon Carter and no, uh, Anna no, no, Wintour, you know, those days are are gone. That only exists on fiction on movies. <laughs> <laughs> We do everything. We are a very, very small uh, team of very talented people. And I must say, I'm very happy with the people that I work with. But we are a very, very small uh, uh, team. And uh, we do everything, you know, from, I, I mean, as I told you, from conceptual uh, conceptualizing pages to make it, to make them happen, to like designing, to everything. I mean, those days you have to, you know, to, to, to make um, an enterprise an enterprise like this one to work, you do have to wear all the uh, hats. Right. And, and not having a problem doing it. So part of my professional life has been in publishing. And, uh, um, you know, I started from, you know, from very from the bottom of the, of the chain. And, 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 you know, I can say I'm happy to do everything, you know, to, to be able to work with people that knows also how this industry works. Um, it, it's easy to be like 
today I, I see a lot of people that come to me and say like, oh, I'm a writer, I'm an influencer. I'm like, well, do you know how to make a magazine? <laughs> They're two different you things. You know how it's to like, write. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not the same to write a caption than to make a to, you know, to do a magazine, to produce a magazine. You know, Miguel, there's been so much about preserving the language of Spanish and being Spanish language dominant in this country for cultural reasons, for historical reasons. So much number, so many studies and researches have said that Hispanics, little by little, and it's, I feel like it's been the last five years, have mm -hmm. really driven themselves to seek English language content. The young generation is speaking more English than ever. They're becoming more Americanized than ever. So many executives dismiss that. They ignored those numbers. And now we're here. So tell me about your editorial strategy. When did it kick in? Did you have conversations with the owners? We have to go English. We got to pitch the English. What was the study? Did someone bring research to you? How were those conversations about taking the magazine into a bilingual strategy that is the future for me of the, mag of the Hispanic uh, magazine industry? Well, first of all, that was that was something that was planned from the beginning. Uh, I think it is a great. I think we we are the only ones in the market that do that. We we have um, our editions. I mean, we go to to newsstands it, with an edition in Spanish. Well, we do have the choice for our readers to get the same magazine in English if they want it. I mean, we mm. produce. The same magazine that we produce in Spanish uh, for newsstands, we produce that in English for subscribers that prefer to read what we produce in uh, in, in English. So, yeah, as you said, you know there is there is this huge part of the market that speak you know exclusively in Spanish and want to receive what they read in Spanish, but. There is a lot of talking about integrated market. I mean, we're, we're seeing that a lot of our readers also speak in English or prefer to get their content in English. So we're catering to that too. I think as a strategy, we are, again, the only ones that do that because we do have the same edition in English and Spanish. You can get it in both languages. It's not that we're sharing. Um, uh, content in English and Spanish in one publication, but we have two, two mirror publications, one in Spanish and one in English. Yeah, this is the only country where I feel that that has to happen because most of the other countries, like if you go to Latin America, or you go to Spain or Central America, you know, there's, there's the primary language, which is Spanish, but you come here and all of a sudden you have to deal with a fragmented Hispanic marketplace. So for you, Miguel, what's been the secret to unlocking those challenges and creating a clear vision of who your target audience is here in the United States? I think it's basically the fact that we're trying also to reach a new generation of readers for Ola. And the new generation is very fluid language-wise and cultural-wise and, and cultural cultural talking. So, you know, we want to reflect that fluidity in the way we produce content. Uh, we feel uh, comfortable in both, la both languages, so we want to produce that content for that very fluid generation. I mean, that generation that feels good in both comfortable in both languages and adding and you know basically that's that's the idea no produce something that is suitable for a generation that feels good culturally in both languages they live fluidly fluidly be between the two of them what's a hispanic today to you how does all usa define a Hispanic celebrity. A celebrity is a celebrity. And I think our readers want to read about entertainment. And uh, yeah, we have the responsibility of covering uh, what is ours and what belongs to our culture. And But we also have the responsibility of cover entertainment. 
um, you know, uh, we do it in Spanish and in English, but we wanna we wanna write and we wanna portray everything that is relevant for our readers, and and that makes a little difference because uh, we wanna talk about uh, Wilmer as a Hispanic, and, and we wanna talk about someone like Eva Longoria, who you know had you know it, it's from a Mexican descendant. But it's someone that is huge. I have done a lot for a Hispanic community in this country, right. and and for women's rights and for everything. Uh, but also, we want to talk about uh, Miranda Kerr, and we want to talk about uh, Eugenia de York and Gina Rodriguez, but also about Hillary Swank. Right. So it's a combination. It's all. It's more about what interests our readers. What What do they want to read? About. And then right before we get to Sophia Carson and your cover story, I wanted to ask you about social media and how you're using, how All Our USA is using it in this particular marketplace. How, uh, are, are you having meetings with your digital people? What has been some of the exchanges of setting sort of a social media editorial tone, which I imagine is very different than the actual print publication? You know, first of all, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's, not that it's different, it's another platform. I mean, we are a 360 uh, operation of, of enterprise. I mean, we do have the magazine, but we also have Ola.com in English and Spanish. And you have and, a television show, right? And, yeah, television channel, Ola TV, which is in, an integral part of what we do in the United States. And, uh, you know, we can offer that as, as you know, it's, it's a 360 platform. Uh, where we can cover from different angles. Uh, the magazine, different from the magazine in Spain or in uh, or in England, our frequency here is monthly. So, uh, you know, we don't get the luxury of breaking news, but we have other platforms like Ola.com or OlaUSA.com, uh, which is in English and Spanish. And... Um, you know, that makes, that give us space to that day-to-day, second-after-second uh, cycle of news, entertainment news that we can cover. Uh, Ola USA as a magazine, it's, let's say, the platform where we can get into deeper conversation about subjects that we cover on a daily basis, on a, on an hourly basis in our and then uh, just a couple of more questions for you, uh, Miguel. First of all, I really want to talk about Sophia Carson. Uh, this is somebody I that's... love. <laughs> okay, so love Sophia. Sophia is becoming like a super rising star. She kind of is in the mold of Demi Lovato, Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez. She's Colombian. She belongs to the Char family. I used to live in Barranquilla, and the Chars are these heavyweight political figures that own radio stations. They're like media moguls in uh, in Colombia. Uh, she comes from that family, and the interesting thing, and we had kind of touched upon this, she's Hispanic American, right? She's well, bilingual, bicultural. Uh, she sings in English and Spanish. Tell me a little bit about choosing her for the cover. She she actually was born in Fort Lauderdale, so she uh, technically she's American. So technically she's American, right? But my like myself, I was born in New York, but I consider yeah. myself Colombian American. I'm sure she does too. And mm-hmm. it's that weird place where you're not Hispanic enough for Univision and Telemundo, but you're also not American enough for the uh, big four networks like NBC, ABC, CBS, right? So you're kind of in this like weird limbo place. Sophia also comes from the Disney this Disney generation that uh, it's primarily huge. Uh, on social media, I mean, let's talk. Let's talk about the eleven point five million followers that she has only on Instagram. Only on Instagram, right? Only on Instagram, eleven point eleven point five. I mean, eleven point four high numbers. So yeah, I mean, let's so, talk about an influence. Yeah. So <laughs> so tell me why you wanted outside of the followers. Why did you choose to have her on your cover? And did you at any moment think she might have been too young for maybe the uh, the age range of your readership? 
in the case of Sophia, there is something else that we're not mentioning here. Being Sophia so young and so prominent in, you know, in, in music and, you know, from that Disney generation, Sophia has a beautiful story that I think that that was exactly what we wanted to uh, highlight is her philanthropic work, mm. uh, which is amazing to me. And, and I think it is an, a, a great example for young people around the world. Sophia belongs to this generation that is responsible to change the world. We're talking about corruption, we're talking about politics, and these are the guys oh, wow. that go out and vote and mobilize a generation of people that has the power of changing the world right now and also has they have the tools they are experts on technology they're they're wizards of social media and i think they do have that language and that that advantage and they know it yeah so you know <laughs> when, when you when you talk to sophia you know i i we did the cover shoot here in new york city um she was coming back from singing in Italy for a big UNICEF gala over there where uh, uh, and also from street from Kenya um, she was there with an organization that uh, built schools uh, for girls uh, and they're responsible to empower a lot of you know women girls to be, the women of the future. So when you hear her story and her compromise to that change in the world, you see, well, you see beyond yeah. the celebrity factor of the glitter, you see this girl that is so conscious and so compromised to make people from her generation to go out and vote, vote her conscious. Uh, that is, that, that for me was the, decisive key to have her on the magazine. Not only the fact that she's beautiful and she has so many followers, but the fact that she's using her point of influence to talk about subjects that really matter. I'm sold, man. I, I, I'm sold on her now. She's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. She's really, really, really amazing. And she really has an, an, an amazing following. So yeah. And then it my was last more than reasonable to have her on the cover. I mean, it's really an honor actually to have her on the cover. And my last question to you, Miguel, is where do you want to take Ola USA in the next year? We, you know, we want to, we want to, we want to stay in this market. We want to, we want to, we want to be here. We want to, grow we want to be this media company 360 company uh that have been in the market for so long and we want to keep being here and and serving and trying to be the lab of what is gonna happen to uh the media you know, we want to be here. We want to. We want to be part of the change. The new issue of Ola USA with Colombian American singer actress Sofia Carson is on newsstands right now. Miguel Cirgado, editor in chief of Ola USA, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's an honor for me to interview you. Well, thank you, Jack. Thank you. I'm so <laughs> happy to be here with you. All right, Miguel. Muchísimas gracias por todo, eh? Gracias a ti. I'm bringing this one back. You ready? It's time for Jacked In. Let's begin with the top movie news of the week. Uruguayan director Fede Alvarez is the director for the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo sequel. Asian director Carrie Fukunaga will be directing the next James Bond movie, Bond 25. Eddie Murphy will star in the Grumpy Old Men remake. Aubrey Plaza will star in the reboot of Chucky. Joaquin Phoenix is the new Joker. Check out the photos on showbizcafe.com. And Marvel Studios just released the trailer for Captain Marvel, their first female superhero film. Here's a listen. So you're not from around here. It's hard to explain. 
I'm not what you think I am. In TV news, the Emmy Awards crowned Game of Thrones best drama on TV and regrettably had the worst ratings in its history with 10.2 million viewers. Kelly Clarkson will have a new TV show and Daredevil will return for season three on Netflix October 19th. Switching over to music, J Balvin tops the Latin Grammy nominations with eight, including Album of the Year and two Record of the Year nods. Don Omar announces new collaboration with Bad Bunny. Maroon 5 will perform during 2019 Super Bowl halftime show and K-pop boy band BTS will be on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon and Good Morning America September 25th and 26th respectively. And in digital and social media news, Apple has unveiled three new iPhones, iPhone XS, X Max, and XR. Instagram may let users start hiding hashtags from posts. Facebook dating launched this week with a test in Colombia. Twitter has brought back chronological timelines and Amazon debuted new Fire, Alexa, and Echo devices. In theaters this week is a Mexican art heist film unlike any art heist film you've seen before. It stars Gael García Bernal and is directed by Mexican director Alonso Ruiz Palacios. The Spanish language film is based on this real life story of two middle class Mexicans who somehow pulled off one of the largest art robberies in modern day history. ¿Dónde vas con esas bolsas? Objetos tan importantes y valiosos como los antes mencionados han sido sustraídos por manos criminales. El Instituto Nacional de Antropología e Historia alerta contra estos vándalos enemigos de su historia y de su herencia. Alonso, welcome to the Highly Relevant Podcast. Thank you very much. So last night I had the pleasure to interview you in a Q&A moderation that was happening at the Angelica Film Center for the movie. It was you, Gael, and myself. And uh, I learned yes. so much about the intricacies and the little details of getting this movie together. And, you know, one of the key things that really sort of resonated with me, and we spoke about this last night, was about your fascination with... The unknown, the abstract, the mysteries of why people do things. You know, why yeah. is this in particular something that you wanted to incorporate into the movie? Well, um, I think the the starting point for that was um, our frustration with the, with the research. You know, the, this this film is based on a real story, um, and my co writer Manuel Alcala he he started researching this story a long time ago and he had all these newspaper cuttings from 1985 when when the thing happened and then from when they got caught in 1989 um and uh but there were so many gaps you know that 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 so many things that weren't clear there were there was so so much misinformation as well so uh, so many of the notes that we found contradicted each other and and then uh the research that we did with the uh, people who knew these guys uh, was also very contradictory. So uh, at some point we decided that we had to embrace that, that that was going to be a part of the essence of this story. And, and, and then we, that kind of drove us to reflect on storytelling in general and, and the relationship between history and fiction, you know, that, that it's a very close relationship, um, that in the end history is... Uh, we, we were all also reading all these history books about the Mayas and about the Aztecs and um, and 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 also about the the time when the museum was the the anthropology museum was built right uh, in, in the 60s and so um, we yeah the, the, we 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 just kept bumping into this thing that. There was a lot of fiction in history, so we decided to embrace that as well. Uh, Gael Garcia Bernal stars in the movie, and what is your relationship with Gael? Was this an audition that he did? Was it something that both of you were friends, and both of you wanted to do a project together, and this was the project to do? How did that... ¿Cómo trabajó esa mancuerna? I'd known Gael for a long time. Uh, we both studied in, in acting in London. Um different schools but um you know we knew each other from then and and uh you know we'd always said we have to find something to do one day and um and then when i was writing this this screenplay his face just kept coming to my <laughs> mind and yeah uh, and that, i mean it's kind of how it works like once you see an actor's face 
or a person's face in 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 um, the character when you're writing, it becomes easier. You you like start to flow, and that's what happened in this case when I saw. It was like, who is this guy that I'm seeing? And when I realized it was Gael, and then the the writing started to flow more easily. And you know, I I, I needed somebody who was short as well, because uh, uh, because the character was short, but mm-hmm. also you know, I think it it was an important thing in like this kind of Napoleon syndrome, you know, right, right, to, to to overcompensate or something. Um, so that was important, but also I needed, you know. Needed a strong leading man who could who could portray a thief, you know, somebody that you that you would condemn, but that would you'd also fall in love with, you know. So I think he was, he was the guy for it. And and so I told him the I told him I was making this movie. I told him the story, and he immediately like it was very easy to to, to for him to to get on board. You know, he really liked it from the one of the things is that that people when they hear an art heist movie they start thinking about you know movies like how to steal a million uh, oceans uh, 11 you know all yeah. those great films about people breaking either into a bank or into a museum or something like that yeah. and they think of this almost action adventure film that's how yeah. we're conditioned and programmed in Hollywood to give us this yeah. is not that. So describe the tone of the film for us and what people can expect to see. Well, that's a tough one for me because I still don't quite know what the tone is. <laughs> I, I, uh, so I think this movie, uh, it, it's been a process of discovering what, what face it has, you know, what kind of beast it is. It definitely has elements of heist. It has um, elements of a road trip because uh, after the heist, the kids go on a on a trip to try to to sell these pieces, and they can't get rid of them. So, so there's there's something of a road movie. Um, uh, there's there's a you know there's the drama about how the protagonists kind of start losing their morality and their you know they start losing their sanity also um, as they as the film progresses and they can't. Do anything with these pieces, and they lose all purpose. Uh, and there's also a lot of comedy in it. So I think it's a, it's it's a kind of a hodgepodge kind of film. It's it's uh, yeah. I I don't know. I mean, there's also elements of of, of other films that I love. There, it, it, it's a film that also reflects on film itself, I guess. So those are two things I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, one of them was the comedy, which I thought was particularly fascinating to me. And then uh, the other one that I wanted to ask, what what kind of films did you see to construct your vision and your emotional mood about this film? Well, I mean, it, watching watching heist movies was, of course, you know, it, it, it was something that we had to do because I'd never shot anything that came near this kind of genre, which is, a you know, a genre. And even though I knew my film wasn't going to subscribe to the heist movie genre. Right, you're going to be inspired by it. Com- exactly. It wasn't going to subscribe to it completely because the story didn't fit in a in a in a heist movie, you know. It, it there, there is a heist, but but that's about it. Um so I di- we did watch a lot of heist movies. We watched uh, particularly uh, Jules Dassin's Rififi, which is a Oh, 1950s. that's a great one. That's one of the probably yeah. the best you know, heist movies yeah. of all time, right? I agree. I agree. I agree. I think it's a masterpiece. We also saw Michael Mann's Thief. You want to put down contract scores all over the country, working directly for me? I am self-employed. And all, all these movies kind of spoke to us about the the labor of of the thief. You know, the the um, how they have to. It's hard work, you know, stealing something. <laughs> um, they, they, it's they're kind of really sympathetical to the point of view of the thief and, and, and the amount of planning and, and hard work that he has to do to, to, to complete his feat. So that, that's what we got from those films. Um, and also, I, 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 we, we saw over and over uh, Terrence Malick's Badlands. My girl Holly and I decided to kill ourselves the same way I did her dad. Just in the way that, that he dealt with a real, a, a real life story, and kind of made it his own, and and he departed 
from from the real story a, a long way, but but there was still he kept he still kept many elements of the real story. So uh, balance was and and I you know I I love the, the the relationship to nature and all of this that he has in his films, but I think it's 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 for me it's the right mix. I I, I think his later films are perhaps a bit too indulgent in, in this from from my taste but I Badlands I think is an absolute masterpiece so we did see it uh, a couple of times this is a movie based on a true story and I was wondering if you had a chance to actually speak to the original thieves um, and how much did you gather from that and how much did you use it in the film no we had we had no 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 communication with the thieves because um, one of them is dead uh so you know we we probably need a Ouija board for that, <laughs> um, and uh, or or some kind of thing, and 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 the other one uh, was never caught, and you know there's rumors that he he fled to to Finland um, or, or to Iceland. We've heard like different. So you don't know if he's dead. You don't know if he's alive. No one knows anything. Else. So this is like an unsolved mystery. Yeah, it is. It is. That's it's exactly that. I mean, we've only heard rumors of people that know the families, but again, uh, they're, they're all contradictory. You know, some people had told us that he's in Iceland. Others said he was in Finland. Um, some said that he comes back sometimes to Mexico on a different identity. So we don't know. It's. I mean, it's. Um, and you know, at, at some point, we decided we didn't want to dig deeper into that because everything was telling us. I mean, we weren't doing a documentary that we knew that from the start, and and um, the families of we, we tried to reach out to their families, and they they very soon they they were they said they didn't want to be part of the film. Now, what about the humor? of this film in particular, there was a scene that I was cracking up and it was a wink at the celebrity and fame of Gael Garcia. Mm. Oh yeah. And it's the part in, uh, where the, uh, military men stop Gael and, and, um, I think it was Benjamin. Yeah. They stop them. They check through their bags mm -hmm. and they find some of the artifacts, yeah. but they thought it was like handcrafted stuff. Yeah. And he goes, Hey, wait a minute. I think, You're, you're a big-time actor, aren't you? And then he asks for his autograph. Yeah. And I didn't exactly know where that was going yeah. because that was piercing the fourth wall. Yeah. And it was making me go, oh, wait a minute. Is this still a part of the movie or is this a wing to Gal's celebrity? Yeah. Because if it is, very clever. But the problem is, is that some people might be so distracted by it that it might yeah. almost take him out of the film. Yeah. How did you manage to balance that? Well, I mean, it was something that occurred to me on the spot. It wasn't in the script. In my previous film, Gueros, um, they do break the fourth wall at some point, and then the film carries on. And I didn't really didn't intend to do this this time, but it just kind of happened because it, it kept happening as we were shooting. When you're shooting with Gael in Mexico, people come up to him all the time and, You know, you're in the middle of a scene and people just kind of walk in in the shot and ask for an autograph or something. Um, <laughs> so that kept happening. And I, and I thought it was kind of funny the way he, he, he became annoyed by it. So I said, well, I'm going to include that in the film. And um, <laughs> it was great. Yeah. And I think it, it works because it also became like a comment on on our nation's priorities. You know, they're more interested in getting an autograph than in catching the thieves. Uh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. I did not see it like that, but uh, now it's very, it becomes very clear to me now yeah. that you mention it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, when we kind of discovered that that's what that scene could do, then we kept it and, and it was, it became very interesting to me. Like the fact that, you know, they, there they have them, they've stopped them, They could just, you know, trap them and 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 try and and put them on trial or whatever. And, but instead of doing that and of doing their job properly, he's more interested in getting an autograph. So it's kind of, yeah, it it, it was an interesting uh, reflection, I think, on 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 
the way things are done in Mexico sometimes, which is sad, you know, it's, it's sad, but it's also funny. In a way. Yeah. Uh, the camera work was very interesting on your part, Alonso. There were a selection of shots that uh, seemed experimental, uh, such as the snapshot scenes within the museum. Mm. The snapshot scenes, just to explain to the people that are listening, there was a scene where you're supposed to be taking like, I think the effect was trying to replicate a Polaroid snapshot. Yeah. But instead of being still, they were moving. Yeah. You heard the audio effect, but the but the but the scenes were moving. And I said, wait a minute, was that a mistake or not? Yeah. Once again, you were trying to be clever and trying to be innovative and autorish with your camera work. And so I wanted to talk about your directorial style. Is this something that you like to do? Yeah. Um, to throw the, th the audience off? Or is this something that is a happy accident that happens in the editing booth? Well, it, I think it's it's both, but it's, of course, it's my decision to, to leave. Some things are accidents and, and, and you know, it's like, uh, yeah, there's, some things happen by accident, but then when you look at them, you think this is really, actually really cool and, and I'll leave that. But I guess I'm interested generally in, in like the the playing aspect of, of filmmaking. You know, I I, I I you know it's a, it's something that you have to take seriously, but not so seriously. You know, it's a it's a game, and and, and I think uh, film grammar and film language are there to be explored and and stretched and squeezed, and um and and I like to do that. You know, I. I I enjoy and I learn from 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 the process. So, so um, those particular things you say uh, sometimes they occur to us on the on the set. Sometimes they, we had planned them, like the the stills. We had planned those beforehand, and 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 there's a you know there's a some thought process behind it. It was it wasn't just like oh let's try to be clever or cool. But, um, we were actually trying to say okay well. How would a uh, let's let's show the um, the rest of the heist, you know, because of the first the, the first um, piece that they steal is depicted very meticulously. We see shots for every single action that they do, and it you know takes them a long time to do it. But then after the, they 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 take the first piece from the case, uh, they they break into the, the glass case. Then. You have to be elliptical for the rest of the pieces. You know, they stole 150 pieces, so we can't show all 150 in the same way. Right. So, so we decided that it was. We kept we 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 had these pictures from the day after the theft. These real pictures, uh, like for the reporters' pictures, and they were, you know, full of their fingerprints, and it it was like a forensics examination. And, and we said, well, let's 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 present it. Like a forensics examination, reconstruction, like how how the police would have reconstructed it if they, you know, if they had been there, you know. And so, right. So that was the idea that it was like uh, snapshots, forensic snapshots. Now, you know, it, a lot of people sometimes, especially in the critics' uh, fields, when they see a director interject their style into a film. Mm -hmm. A lot of critics sometimes don't like that because they're interjecting themselves yeah. into the story somehow, yeah. you know, and affecting that universe. Yeah. In your particular case, when you do things like that, do you ever get any feedback from other directors going, hey, no deberías de hacer eso, no te interjectes, you know, <laughs> things like that? Or, or is it more like, let's support the, the creativity uh, of the director in the story? Well, I think, both cases. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in films that that develop both substance and style simultaneously. And and uh, you know, I, I, I don't think uh, visual experimentation should be um, should be left aside. Uh, all ne necessarily, I I don't believe that. I mean, I th that way of looking at filmmaking doesn't interest me. You know, um, that way of it must all be clinical, and you know, you're, everything is fake. So um, it's just a matter of how you tell something. So yeah, I've I've had that kind of feedback, but I've also, I mean, I try. I I think you 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 feel that in a film if there's no thought process behind the decisions and they're just arbitrary 
cool looking shots and i tr i really try not to do that and i don't think i did that in this film um, every decision has a has a reasoning behind it and and um and that that reason always for me has to do with the story uh finally uh, alonso there's the ending of the film which i thought was very interesting and i think it left the audience wanting to know why mm -hmm. why did these two thieves end up doing it and the film doesn't necessarily tell you and so I've spoken to Miguel Arteta about the same exact reason of why there's some movies that have these endings where they're not, they don't feel complete. And as a viewer, sometimes I get very frustrated with the director for not giving me a completion. If I'm investing my money yeah. and I'm sitting there for two hours <laughs> and you're not going to tell me why these guys did this, I'm going to be a little bit angry. Yeah. How do you deal with audiences that want a complete answer when creatively you don't want to do that? How yeah, I, I understand that some people will be frustrated by, by us not answering straight, but some people will be stimulated. And I'm interested in talking to those who of, of the second kind that, that don't want every single answer to be spoon-fed into them. And In, in Spanish, we have uh, the saying... Um, Uno no es monedita de oro para gustarle a todos. <laughs> <laughs> bueno, Alonso, muchísimas gracias for being on the show and deconstructing the film for us and allowing the people to listen to your vision of what you have in Museo. I highly enjoyed it. I think everyone should go check it out. It's one of the more interesting stories um, in Mexico um, in the last 20 to 30 years. And I think it's one of the most interesting stories, period, about art theft uh, in the world. So, muchísimas gracias por hacer la película. Thank you very much, Alonso. Gracias a ti. That's it for episode 93 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I want to thank Miguel Sirgado and director Alonso Ruiz Palacios. Hope you guys enjoyed the conversations as well. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by sharing us on social media and telling all your friends about it. You can reach me on Twitter at JackRicoOfficial and Instagram at JackRico. Also remember to tune in Saturday morning, October 6th, on NBC to catch the premiere episode of my brand new show, Consumer 101. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.